You're listening to Ants Talk. My next guest served in the police force for 30 years. During the 30 years in the force, he experienced an event that not only changed his career, but almost ended his life. Welcome to the show, Daryl Elliott Green. How are you, Daryl? I'm excellent, Anthony. I'm here in sunny Queensland and fortunately, uh, COVID's not affecting us too much, unlike our poor uh, Southern cousins in New South Wales. I know, I know. I'm in um, South Australia and we've been very blessed here. Very, very lucky indeed. So, Daryl, thanks for joining me on the show. So I've read your story and as, a sh- as shocking as it sounds, you still don't get the full scale of how fortunate it is that you even survived that day and how it would have been to go through it. So would you be so kind as to retell it for us? Certainly. It was the 1st of May 2000. I was a general duties officer on night work and I received a routine call with my partner and it was death threats, which was spoken six hours earlier. So we drive to the address, which is a in a cul-de-sac and our supervisor followed us uh, there to the address. This is, we got there about, it would have been about 3.30 approximately when we've actually arrived. And we spoke to two males on the driveway. And what had occurred is there's these three males who live in the street. Uh, the suspect at this stage, Nigel Perotti, had said to one of the males, I'm going to go over and sh- sh- shoot the other male in the legs, kneecap him and kill myself. Well, this third male had been out all day. So he comes home. His um, friend who had been told this death threat comes over to his place and says, well, Nigel reckons he's going to come over and shoot you. They call police communications. I am at a service station when this job comes through. I write on my police notebook these basic details that we have and I drive past the offender's uh, house because it was a cul-de-sac. We meet these two males, have the conversation uh, on the driveway, but it starts to rain. We move up to the veranda, further conversation. And the decision we were trying to make is, did they have enough credibility? Did we have enough information to go and execute an emergent search warrant? Just go in and kick the door down try and find the offender and search for this weapon and and question them? Or was their credibility was not um, a high enough level that we felt that we'd have to go and see a justice of the peace, put the information towards them and sign out a search warrant if they were willing to. But we never got to that. The sergeant moved back to the patrol car He entered the driver's seat and he used the police radio to do background checks on the suspect. My partner, Charnel, she went down to the veranda to check on the sergeant. She came back to the front yard to wave me down. The two males we've been speaking to on the veranda, we hadn't built the best rapport with. They pretty much just wanted us to take their information and act on it immediately. And they were saying some things that were irrational. And one of them said, oh, He's even planted a listening device in the house and they brought out something that looked like a a thimble. So the level of credibility was not on the high scale when they started Mm. saying things like this. And I'm sure 
you don't want the police to kick the door in of your house and search for a fire and question you over threats if it's not valid. Mm. So we were having this backwards and forwards with these, with these two males. We're trying to get our information and they were just getting frustrated with us asking these questions. Sharnell's waved me down to from the veranda to the front yard of this house. And I said, hey, Shah, what's going on? And he says, oh, nothing. I just wanted to get you away from those two idiots. So my partner was thinking that she was um, looking after me. But yeah. actually what was about to occur, many of those what-if moments, we were um, about to enter the eye of the storm. So Chris is still in the patrol car on his mobile phone doing background checks on the suspect. Sharnell enters the front passenger seat and she uses the police radio to do the background checks on the two males who've called us there. Again, another what if moment. I was standing uh, to the rear side of the vehicle on the roadway and I thought, well, I'm going to listen into this and say that I can receive the information and I can you know, know what's going on and, and help you know, value add. So I open the rear passenger door of the patrol car. I sit down, slide across to the middle of it so I can hear the information coming in from Chris and, and from Charnel. And we're only going to be here a few moments. So I decide to leave the patrol car door open. It's dark, it's still, it's deadly quiet. We have the interior light on. I'm sat in the back seat of the car and about 60 seconds go by. And then from my left, I hear this pat, pat, pat sound. And I wonder, what can that be? It's you know, deadly still outside and it just ran through my head. Well. The only thing that that could make sense that could possibly be would be a neighbor's dog running up to the patrol car. So I nonchalantly turn and look outside the vehicle. But we have the interior light on, so I have no night vision. So I actually can't see what's outside the vehicle. Standing there was the suspect. Pointed at my face from less than a meter away was a .22 caliber rifle. Bang, I'm shot in the face. Bang, I'm shot in the arm. My hands are around my mouth. My body's in the prone position. I can feel blood, teeth, and bone in my hands. Mm -hmm. I sit up. I see my sergeant's seat is empty. His door's wide open. My partner is splattered with blood, and she's completely motionless. I scream, get help. I draw my firearm, and I go out through the door that I got shot through. These are moments that uh, will be with me for the rest of my days. Uh, like anybody who's been through um, you know, s such an, uh, an incident. I felt no pain. I didn't even know I'd been shot a second time in the arm and I had the adrenaline rush. I went into fight mode and I actually started calling out to the offender. I wanted to confront him. I was, the rage was caused by the, the gutlessness of, of, of this attack. Mm. And this is actually all recorded on audio, but the sergeant it, yeah. on the mobile phone, it's dropped out on the roadway. So 
I use language at this particular time that, that I normally don't use in polite company. I drop the F-bomb and sorry, ladies, I even drop the C-bomb. <laughs> As a dear lady friend said to me, Daryl, if there was an ever a time to use that word, that was it. <laughs> it certainly was. It certainly was. What were the thoughts that immediately happened? Did you, did you think you were going to die? Like once you'd, you'd, you'd realised that you had been shot? I, I didn't, uh, it was the, I was just overcome with the uh, adrenaline mm. uh, that powered me on and I had realised I'd been shot, but I was able to draw my phone, I was able to get out the car, I was able to move. And uh, but that thought just never went near my head, but I knew that I was losing a lot of, a lot of blood um, from my mouth. Anybody who's had oral surgery knows that yeah. it's... Um, it bleeds, it bleeds excessively, yeah. Exactly. So I was losing a lot of claret. And uh, this in time would come to um, very much fatigue me, that, mm. that loss of blood. So I'll give a, a briefer version of the events as followed now. So I've called on the, the offender to confront him. I can't find him. Now I have to make a decision. Do I tend to my partner? I don't know if she's alive or dead, or do I look to the sergeant? I'm thinking, is he lying wounded somewhere in the street? Not, not easy decision, but I need to make a decision. I thought, well, I know where Charnel is, and that, but I don't know where the sergeant is. I'll see if I can locate him. So I walk down the street with my firearm out, and I yell out Chris's name as best I can with my damaged mouth. Mm. And on the audio, it's actually recorded eight times. So, um, you know, I, the, I wasn't hiding from the offender. He, 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 he could see me, he, he could hear me, and he can come back at, at me. But I was um, willing to confront him as I searched for Chris. Couldn't find Chris. I turned around. Longest walk of my life. I had audio exclusion immediately as we were shot. And so I couldn't hear the police radio. I couldn't hear Chanel's screams uh, for help. So I didn't know if I was going to find her alive or dead. And I come back to the patrol car. I lean with my right arm on the bonnet of the patrol car. I hold my firearm. With my left hand, I hold my mouth. And that's to try and staunch the flow of blood. And I look through the windshield at Chanel. And she says, Greeny, I'm hurt. Greeny, I'm hurt music to my ears i knew my partner was alive mm. and i said to her shah it'll be all right it'll be all right and she was thinking at this time later she confided this in me the sergeant's missing we've got a gunman on the loose and you're pouring blood from your mouth all over the bonnet with a patrol car granny you're not very reassuring <laughs> I know that the adrenaline had kicked in, but was there also terror and fear of what was happening around you at that moment? No, I can honestly say that I was just driven to, um, there was just, um, I was just driven to find the offender. I couldn't find him. And I was just, right, where's Chris? I can't find him. I've come back. I found um, Chanel was okay. And then I'm thinking, <sighs> Can I intend and give some sort of first aid? At that time, we didn't have any tactical first aid kits. Now police have you know, a tactical first aid where you'll have, you know, um, tourniquets uh, and, um, uh, and uh, chest um, 
wound um, applications. But we had none of this. And I also thought, well, you know, the offender could come back at, at us. You know, is he, is he waiting to have a, a second ambush? As often, you know, terrorists will set off one bomb, they'll wait for the rescuers to come in, and then they'll set off another bomb. So I'm thinking, are they, are they, is he in waiting for the, the next wave of police to come in, or is he just reloading to come back at me? Mm. So I had to make that decision, saying, so no, I'm going to stay here, firearm out, try and stay alert until the first help arrives mm. and longest five minutes of my life. And most of us don't like seeing those flashing blue and red lights, but it was the prettiest sight in the world. I bet. I bet. Incredible. I've heard, I've actually heard that police call um, the radio call on that day and you can literally hear the fear in everyone's voices that's involved. What strikes you the most when you hear it back yourself? the helplessness of the people in police communications. Mm. Yeah, I can those, hear that too. Those people up there actually knew me because I worked in police communications from 94 to 96. So like, they knew that's Greeny. It's, mm. it's Greeny. He's one of the officers who have been, been uh, shot where my other colleagues ha had not worked up there. So there was a personal connection with them and Events like this brings on um, trauma for many people. And there's a lot of people people don't think about. They'll think about, oh, the officers. They'll think about their families. But there's also the officers who turn up for the scenes of crime. But another one was one of my very good friends up there, uh, she'd taken the phone call from the complainant, the person who had the threats made against them. And she had a terrible time afterwards thinking, what else could I have done? What could I have asked? to help you know prevent this mm. and the call is recorded i actually have a copy of the call she's done everything right she's attained all the information she could she's done all the checks she could it was just a terrible situation yeah um, if you're going to execute a search warrant and you want to do it in uh, at, at first light the early hours of the morning um when because a lot of offenders they like to sleep in so it gives mm. us an advantage and then you have overwhelming numbers of police at the front and at the back. But we were in the middle of the night. Uh, there was only the supervisor and my partner and myself, and we had to drive past the offender's address to because um, we actually you know, went, was not, not quite sure where he was. So we had to drive past it to get to the complainant's house and he was a night out and was alerted by our cars coming down the street. Right. But, you know, there's always got to be that first person to knock on the door and see what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Live, love and talk. What ended up happening to him? There was a massive manhunt that went on for three weeks and as the first officer on the, the, on the scene described it, he said, he said he'd never seen the city of Brisbane so petrified. So for the police, at least, they're all, they're all the, uh, on the north side, all the uh, police front counters, they were shut. There was no single officer's patrols. Officers were all vested up and there was numerous sightings. They, this person grew up in the Chermside West area. They knew the area very well. And they were worried that he could be hiding somewhere there in some of these tunnel systems that, that they um, that they have for you know for the storm um, water. 
Three weeks into the search, uh, the district officer, Dennis Houston, uh, to his credit, they'd already searched this area once and he had a hunch and decided to go back there. So it was a combined armed police and SES search. They were moving through this uh, Chermside Hill Reserves, two kilometres from where the shooting took place, and they found a decomposed body with a 22 rifle. Wow. The coroner has ruled that she believes that within 24 hours of, of the event that he has taken his own life with the weapon he shot us with. Wow. That was three intense weeks. Yeah, Not only that. for the community of Brisbane and also even for us involved. I was starting to have dreams and uh, I was concerned, you know, a little bit of anxiety coming. Is he going to try and come back learning these officers survived? But um, mm. he certainly had the ammunition to um, to, 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 um, uh, to shoot us again and any police coming on to it. But the in the coroner's report, the um, lead investigator, the detective uh, sergeant, Mark Reed, wrote in it that, that no one would suspect uh, that after shooting somebody in the head area at such a close range that they were going to get out of the vehicle. Yeah. And he's made, uh, he believes that my getting out the vehicle and my being so vocal has actually startled him and caused him to withdraw from the scene mm. so but i was still certainly i was there i was there to take him on yeah, yeah. it's absolutely it's incredible to think that you actually were able to do that it really is it's it's mind-blowing actually I'm actually a fairly pretty mild, placid uh, person, and uh, it takes a lot to rile me up. Mm. Even uh, some friends said that the other night. I was at a barbecue, and we've got a bit of an ongoing joke, uh, and 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 I said, "No, mate, I I'm thick-skinned," and uh, and he said, "You know what? Even my daughter said that about you." Well, <laughs> well about, you know. Because I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm of slight build, and you know, you know, I'm 178 centimeters, not the tallest guy in the world, and I've, I've just always been like that. Yeah. But if it gets to a point, and, and then I think it's a good way to be. Yeah. Uh, and well, especially when you do, you're you're in the police force, it's a very, very good attribute. Yeah, well, you, and it's not the first thing you want to go to. You, you know, you want to you want to de-escalate as much as you can, and, and but right. then there's times to, that then you let them know that sorry, we're not going to be a pushover and we're not going away, and and you can call it a little bit of bluff. One of the jobs I, I went to, I remember there was uh, two patrol cars. It was an out of patrol party, so there's four officers. We've got fifty kids in the backyard. What are we going to do? I was a senior officer. And I said, lock the patrol cars and because we don't want any equipment stolen. I was a bit worried about them being damaged, but the, the party was, um, you know, out of control. We've got the parents had come out and said, look, they you know, we've just held this party, you know, um, for our um, 18th for our child, but we've got these gate crashes. And I, well, you don't want to split up with your partner. So I said, okay, you two go down the left-hand side, you two going down the right-hand side of the house and we'll move into the back. And we've gotten to the backyard and we're confronted with all these teenagers. And anyway, I just put on my loudest, you know, sergeant major drill structure and voice and said, <laughs> you know, everyone, 
It's the police. The party is over. The exit is this way. Start moving now. If you do not move, you will have the pleasure of having being able to stay with Her Majesty's tonight at the watch house. <laughs> and I've stopped. And it's like this pregnant pause. And I'm thinking, what's going to happen? And the kids started to move and filter uh, away from the house. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Now, I've um my own nephew is actually um in the police force. He's joined only a oh, I think he's been it for about three or four years now. And it's one of the things that, you know, as family members, we're always concerned about him. We're always worried about him in all situations because we know the the gravity of some of the situation that you situations that you guys deal with. Since this accident, what have your long-term battles been? Uh, I was diagnosed um, you know, immediately on with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, and uh, it took, initially I was stunned and dazed. That literally was. I, I just couldn't, couldn't believe it. So yeah. I was, we were all rushed to the you know, Royal Brisbane Hospital. My head wound was dealed with that, dealt, deemed the most serious. I was operated on first, and it was, took some quite some time for them to extract the bullet, uh, which it gone through my um, maxilla bone, destroyed it, destroyed three teeth, smashed two bottom teeth into my tongue, gone six inches, six inches down into my throat. So they had to do some Kiel surgery to pull it out. Gone to intensive care for about two days. I've had to have tracheotomy to help me breathe. So all my communications with investigators and loved ones and senior police was written down. It was a uh, yeah, difficult time. Well, I've come out and I started having dreams, but I was still in this, this daze mm. of like, you know, I've been shot in the head from a meter away from a 22 rifle, which the offenders actually used to kill himself. And I'm alive here today to tell the tale. Like mm. I, I described it as like winning gold lotto, but on the other end of the spectrum. Yeah. And, and so I was having dreams and about some of the incidents I've been to and, and about that night. But when I was otherwise up and about, there was, it was just a, like a, a fog, you know, through my memory. It was hard for me to concentrate on things or to, to function uh, normally. And, uh, but what really set me down into um, a downward spiral for my mental health was seven weeks after we were shot. A senior constable, Norm Watt from Rockhampton Dog Squad, he attends a domestic violence instance. He's shot once, the bullet severs his femoral artery in his leg. And uh, you know, people who are um, in the you know, doctors, nurses, ambulance officers, people who've done first aid courses, likely know. Unless the blood flow is stopped from that type of wound, you have four minutes to live. Wow. Help did not arrive in time for Norm. He bled out. And in the back of my mind, in my subconscious, what started to tick over was Norm, you know, uh, sorry, Chris Chanel and I, we were shot, shot multiple times. Paul Norm was shot once. Guys. And so my own mortality really started to be questioned. Mm. And this caught um, the dreams I was already having, but uh, my hyperarousal went off the wall, uh, anxiety, you know, that, you know, People were after me that I wasn't uh, safe. Uh, depression became, unfortunately, a, 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 an ongoing battle for a, a number of years. 
um, sexual dysfunction um, kicked in, um, uh, a lot of anger kicked in, and uh, it's quite. Uh, I could probably go on with a list of another thing. Like sleep is 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 um, huge issue, uh, and yeah. and then there would be triggers about something I would you know you know see on the news. I remember one of them was when a friend invited me to watch the movie Black Hawk Down, and uh, this was. I was going through reconstructive surgery and I was, you know, electrified, you know, after watching that film because of what those soldiers went through with being shot at and being shot. Well, that reminded me of my own incident of, of, of being shot. So there's, yeah, unfortunately it was a whole range and I'm, I am very grateful to Vietnam veterans, especially the American veterans, because they had so many problems and they openly spoke about it. Uh, finally, in, the, in 1980, the American uh, Psychiatric Association, they uh, finally uh, deemed this as an illness and mm. entered it in manual. So PTSD was recognised as a, um, a mental health uh, condition. Yeah. Previously, it hadn't been. I mean, first of all, they'd been shell-shocked and they'd learned a lot and they forgot about it. And then you had the Second World War soldiers had these effects it was you know combat fatigue and they'd forget about it even back to the civil war it was called soldier's heart in, in america mm. uh, nothing new but but it certainly helped people you know like my um you know self understand i'm not crazy and this is a normal reaction to a yeah. very abnormal that's what i think a lot of people don't realize i mean i mean my, my story's very you know nothing compared to yours i was actually attacked in the street when i was in sydney at night um, where these two guys sort of grabbed me and were asking me for money. Then all of a sudden, when I said no, they pulled out a knife, held it to my throat. Then I managed to get away. They're then trying to, you know, get me back and they're bashing me on the top of the head, all this sort of stuff. Thankfully, some people ran up and saved me. But from that point, I actually couldn't go out at night. Um, and I wasn't really sure at the beginning, I wasn't sure why. Like, I just was like, it took about two weeks for me to realise I have not been out at night once and I wonder why that is. And then I realized it was absolutely just the pure fear of doing it. Um, so, you know, if, if something as insignificant as that can have that sort of reaction on me, which lasted well over two and a half, three years, I can just imagine what has been, you know, happening with, with your own PST, uh, PSTD, because it really is an issue that a lot of people face and so many people just don't realize and don't get it. Um, but it is a very, very serious condition that has such a such a dramatic effect on so many aspects of your life. It really does. So after doing the reconstructive surgery and going through PTSD, you are also fighting for criminal compensation. How did you deal with all this? What was the most challenging? Oh. If you can try and climb one mountain at a time, I've learned that's that's the easiest, and I've had quite a few uh, mountains to uh, climb. Mm. So criminal compensation you can apply for in Queensland after your work cover matter is finalised. So work cover was paying for the reconstruction of my mouth and the healing of my arm, as well as my uh, you know, mental health uh, treatment by a psychiatrist. And my the first reconstruction failed. I went through a second reconstruction. It was... It was in fact a second trauma. Uh, it was so so intrusive. But by 2006, 
it was deemed that it was a uh, success and work cover you know, closed my case. And funnily enough, though, then something else happened. My bottom middle teeth, they just started splaying apart. And one of the people who was part of the uh, team that was helping reconstruct my mouth was an orthodontist. And I went in to see him in 2007 and I said, oh, I've got this problem. For some reason, my bottom teeth are splaying apart. And he understood that it was because of the, uh, uh, the, the shooting and the reconstruction of my mouth. And I remember his words and he said, look, don't worry about, you know, work cover or that bureaucracy, mate. I'll treat you for free. Oh. So just a, just a kind, very kind um, man, uh, Bob, Bob James, this orthodontist, and um, he brought my teeth back uh, together with uh, uh, braces. So after the work cover claim, I can then uh, go and, and, and claim criminal compensation. Now, I'm pretty sure it's a no-brainer. I was a victim of a crime. Mm. Hard to argue that point. Now, the legislation said that um, you're entitled to criminal compensation if the offender is found guilty, if the offender is found insane, if the offender goes missing. What circumstance did they not include? When they die. Sure. The offender took their own life. So I had engaged you know, a lawyer to, to help me with this process to claim criminal compensation. I didn't know the ins and outs of the law. I just thought, look, this is a, this is a no-brainer that I'm a victim of a crime. It's, it's been all over the news. I've even got an audio recording of the shooting taking place. Here's the photographs you know, of the police vehicle all shut up and the spent shells, and here's me in hospital. <laughs> here's all my missing teeth. And uh, he, there's a coroner's report, by the way, that... Uh, that you know documents the entire uh, incident, mm. and so uh, then I was uh, uh, you know, shocked to learn a, a, about the um, specifics of law and how um, some people can be just very linear and uh, and just apply to the letter of the law and not show any compassion. Mm -hmm. My uh, solicitor realised that it never fitted the uh, um, circumstances, so. A lawyer actually and so she wrote to the queensland department of justice and saying you know daryl's obviously a victim of a crime we understand that his circumstances do not meet the specifics of the legislation but we're asking for you know to show um, um compassion and make an ex gratia payment and it's not a great deal of money but the top payout was seventy five thousand dollars which is not life-changing by, by by any means and you're not even likely to get that and what you receive from work cover, they take away from it anyway. So mm. I wasn't looking at a great deal of money. And what would happen is a clerk uh, at the Queensland Department of Justice would look at the legislation, look at my circumstances, and simply write back, uh, Daryl, it's ineligible for criminal compensation. And this went on for years. And so tackling one thing at a time, I had a number, number of challenges that I was working my way through. And it comes to 2010. And I, and I had met another a couple of challenges. And I thought, right, I'm going to focus back on my criminal compensation. And I picked up the phone and I, and I spoke to my lawyer. And she said, Daryl, they, they are just not listing you're throwing away good money after bad give up on your criminal compensation claim 
But if there's one attribute I have, it's one that's, you know, not to give up, to keep going. <laughs> and uh, you might even call it stubbornness. And some things are worth fighting for. Exactly. And uh, so I, I, I wanted, you know, to still uh, pursue this. But I had a break. 2010 is the 10th anniversary of the shooting. The Curie Mail asked if we wish to do an interview in relation to the shooting. I and Chris agreed. We were at police headquarters. We um, had a representative from police media there. I wasn't as comfortable speaking about the, um, you know, the shooting at that particular uh, time um, as I as as I am uh, now, and so I just asked them to be to be present so that I could um, give a, 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 a solid in interview and reflect well on the Queensland Police. And so we were asked about that fateful night, what's transpired since and our hopes for the future. And I simply said, and I remember the words you know, it's so simply, because it was the end of the interview. They said, oh, is there anything else you want to say? Oh, by the way, I'm still pursuing criminal compensation. If you make an entry, it just may help. What happens next? Full page Courier Mailer article. Title is... Red tape ambush, copper shot decade ago, still fighting for criminal compensation. My compensation was finalised within one month. Wow, that's amazing. I'm so happy you did, though, because seriously, that's just absolutely ridiculous in that sort of circumstance. And I think that's the big problem with um, compensation these days is that they really don't look at the individual case. They they just blanket everything and it's so annoying and just so debilitating for so many people that are going through a myriad of, you know, situations. And at the worst time of a person's life, being rejected for that sort of stuff has such an impact, such an impact. It's, it's absolutely appalling what you know, some of these companies do. You're, you're exactly right. And one of the best bosses I ever had, Dave Stevenson, who I, uh, I love talking about because he's an example of, of a real leader, uh, who um, a supportive leader and an, an incredible emotional intelligence. And that when something was going on, be it for me or somebody else, and he'd say, don't worry about the paperwork. I'll take care of that. Look, you, you deal with you know what you're going through mm. rather than um, I had one stage where... I was having a pretty tough time in my life. My mum had passed away. Um, my brother flew out, flew out for the funeral, but you know, I had to take care of most of the arrangements. Three weeks later, my uh, uncle has a stroke and he needs to go in a home. So I'm managing um, my life, uh, my father's life, because uh, you know, mum used to pay all the bills, so I had to mm. help him in that. Uh, my uncle's life, he was had to try and get him into an aged care facility. My mum's estate and i'd been taking uh, what i thought was carelessly which i thought i was entitled to my uncle's you know part of my um family yeah and then somebody found out that oh no um that relationship doesn't doesn't count so um sorry darryl you've got to reverse all your carers and take it as sickly uh. and and i it was you know the the I couldn't actually use the computer system. Then I had to do, you know, do paperwork applications for it, and, and it was actually a nightmare to try and work all this out. And the um, acting inspector said, "Look, I've spoken to an expert in this in this system about it. So each each day you've taken, you need to do a paper application and reverse it." Yeah. 
and so I'm, you know, going through the computer system. I'm trying to work out these dates, and um, it was uh, very, very uh, painful. And yeah, I had enough going on to be worrying about this silly, you know, bureaucracy. Yeah. And because it, the, my uncle, he had no family, so I, 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 I was, I was, I was it. Yeah. And fortunately, I actually. I actually picked up the phone to speak to HR and explain the circumstances. I said, look, this is ridiculous. Just give us a list of the dates and we'll go directly into the computer system and we'll reverse it. We'll take it from carers leave to sick leave. And uh, where Dave Stevenson would have been completely uh, different yeah. uh, in that scenario. Crazy. And I tell you what, that, that level, and it wasn't just me, but that that level of, of trust or going the extra mile for your boss, those little things add up um, exponentially. Yeah, definitely. Um, before we sign off, what, after all of this time and after all the experience that you went through, was there anything as a positive that you took away from it? If you ask me, no. You've asked me that question. I there's two ways to always look at something, and I do consider myself very lucky because a I'm alive, b I'm not crippled, mm. uh, c I was able to continue my uh, career, and but I did um, uh, re- retire after thirty years because. The shooting and taking a toll. I stayed on twenty years afterwards, but I I, I medically re- retired, and um, for my for my own health and what was going on with my um, uh, elderly elderly family, and mm. it was and it's still every day that I, I manage those, those those systems. But I was in an old police superannuation scheme, so that set me up for the rest of my life. So yes, I consider myself. Um, Lucky, where other people can look at the glasses is, is half full, mm. and and so little little things I don't take for granted. Yeah. Uh, and, and I know that's common things said by people who've been through sort of similar experiences, but it's so true. People whinge about trivial things, and if something goes wrong in their life, like one of my friends are. Uh, daughters left high school didn't get great marks didn't um do um get into any of the university courses and she's got a job and she's complaining and whinging about this job and i'm thinking oh what's going on is she being bullied no she's in an office job and she just hates it and oh, it's, i know complaining about it and saying like well <laughs> Um, we've all got to do things in life that we don't like and and that can be working hard for a brighter future mm. and that's why i encourage I'm, I'm very proud to be a lifelong ambassador and, and just share their message of you know we want a suicide free australia and often it'll occur this one thing that occurs on top of another you know that brings people down but if you can tackle one thing at a time reach out for help for you need it and even if you cannot see that light at the end of the tunnel, if you just keep going, yeah. as my dad loves to say, just by the law of averages, you'll have an upswing. That's brilliant. I love that. Wise words from your dad. I think that is a great point, though, because you do have people in life that, you know, are, are here even in Adelaide that probably right now screaming at some cafe worker because their sandwich was ruined, but you've got someone in Nepal that would 
absolutely kill to be able to eat that sandwich, however it is presented. Very, very true. Well, Daryl, thank you so much for sharing your story with me. I really appreciate it. And I really hope that, you know, the world just prospers for you and you continue to have great success and a great life. And I really, really value the time that you've given me. I thank you so much. Now, Anthony, it's an absolute pleasure to, to share the story, especially the good people that have been in my life and, and, and share that message for lifelong because over the pandemic, they've had a real increase in calls. And mm. so if um, you know, people want to support Lifeline, like there's a Bridge to Brisbane race coming up and I'm going to be part of the team that, you know, just help raise a little bit of uh, funds for them. But uh, thanks for what you're doing for, uh, you know, sharing uh, good stories uh, with people it. out there. We all need, you know, positive, good stories in our life. But we the do. news is quite negative. It is. Yeah. It is indeed. Thank you again, Daryl. I really appreciate it. No worries. Thank you, Anthony. Ants talk. It's like Oprah, but not.